0: Good morning, Bethel. I want to give you just a quick announcement, and then we'll dive right into our text. Christian Thought Forum is coming up. You know this. If you'd open your bulletins, please, this is inside. Friday, November 11th, and Saturday, November 12th, we have two excellent speakers to come to speak with you, or speak to you, about some really hot topics that our culture is really struggling with. One is civil liberties, and the other is a whole host of issues related to gender issues. Uh, we've, we've looked at these speakers carefully, vetted them, we've been in conversation with them, and we want to bring them up from their, for their expertise to instruct and to teach us, but also to have opportunity for you to bring your hard questions to them instead of to us, uh, to them, and really challenge them and have some good, meaningful dialogue. Um, I hope you will take advantage of this. This is a phenomenal opportunity. And uh, there's a lot of uh, other people in the community that are going to be coming as well. And I hope Christian Thought Forum continues to grow and expand in the years to come. Um, As you guys know, Holly Pivick has done the lion's share of the work on this and has really helped to identify two great speakers and to organize a great conference. So please make this a priority. Set the time aside. And uh, I hope that you will be here both Friday and Saturday for these things. Uh, if you will now uh, just bow and pray with me, we'll go to the Lord and ask him to guide our time as we worship him through the study of his word. Our Father, we have joined our voices together this morning. In some cases, a joyful noise. Uh, some of us sounding better than others, Lord. But as good as it is for the people of God to gather and to give praise we know, Lord, that it falls short of the full glory you are to receive. Nevertheless, Lord, we continue to come to place you in your rightful place as supreme and high over all, as the one that we order our lives around, the eternal one, God most high, the one who made us for himself and saved us though we are rebels. So we rejoice to sing you praise We long to do that, Lord. I pray now that as we come to your word that this would also be an act of worship where we do not live only for ourselves and our desires, but we live for you. So teach us, Lord, about yourself, your nature, and your desire for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Excuse me. That's not the last cough you're gonna hear this morning. If you would open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter nine, we're gonna finish uh, the book this morning. I read a startling statistic uh, this past week which said that 10% of American adults report being in recovery from some kind of substance abuse or another. 10% of American adults report in being in recovery from some kind of substance abuse uh, or addiction. This, of course, is nothing to do with or says nothing about addicts who haven't even yet come to grips with their addiction or began to deal with it. Pretty startling when you think of those numbers. But here's maybe even a more startling statistic for you, which you already know. And that is this, 100% of mankind is hooked on sin. 100%. While we grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we still struggle with sin and we still relapse. Most of our lives are spent in taking two steps forward and one step back. Or in some of your cases, one step forward, two steps back. We struggle with sin. It is an ongoing battle within us. And I think if you've ever had um, sort of the burden, if I can call it that, or the, uh, the to, to come alongside an addict and to care for them, whatever their addiction might have been, whether it was smoking or alcohol or gambling, or Thai food, or whatever. Uh, One of the great frustrations at times is that for all of their good intentions and for all of their hard work, they can relapse. And if you've ever walked alongside somebody who's going through that kind of a process, it's painful when that occurs. It's demoralizing, both for the person who feels in bondage to this addiction and to those who are trying to help. I've shared with you many times before my own extended family's uh, difficulty in history with addiction, particularly alcohol. Uh, it was always hard for me to hear again when someone that I loved was back at it again and all of the fallout that it, that it caused. But here's what I want to address this morning in the same way that an addict can relapse. So sinners like you and me frequently return to our favorite sins. Our favorite sins. There was a great quote that I ran across this past week by Dr. Rosaria Butterfield. She said this, my choice sins know my name and address. And the same is true for you. And the reality is they they beckon to us. And we can oftentimes be judgmental of somebody else's struggle with the sin. And we can look at them and say, "I, I don't understand. Why is it that you battle with anger so much? Why is that such a difficulty for you? What we need to do is look at such a person and remember that that for them is as tempting as maybe lust is for us. Or, I don't understand why is lying such a temptation? Why can't you just tell the truth and trust the people around you? And yet we need to look at that person and realize that for them lying is as easy as laziness comes to us. We all have our choice sins and they beckon to us and we fall back into them. We relapse. And it doesn't take very long in reading the Old Testament scriptures in particular to see, as we look at the history of God's people, that struggling with sin is in fact just human nature. It's just a matter of fact. In fact, I don't even have to read the accounts of the Israelites again and again. Really, all I have to do is look at my own life. And the same is true for you. I know that to be the case. And what we find there is this war within us, right? A war within us. (coughs) In that same article uh, that I quoted a second ago by Dr. Rosaria Butterfield, she does a good job explaining that it's not that we're powerless to sin. But it is, in fact, a war within us. She says this, the supernatural power that comes with being born again means that where I once had a single desire, one that says, if it feels good, it must be who I really am. Now, I have twin desires that war within me. Amen to that. And she quotes Galatians 5, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For those who are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. She goes on to say, and this war doesn't end until glory. That's the reality of it. You're not going to hit that threshold sometime in this life where you go, sweet, sin was only a thing of the past. I no longer battle it now. If you're hoping for that, you have false hope. You're going to continue to war with it. She says, victory over sin means that we have Christ's company in the battle. Not that we're lobotomized. My choice sins know my name and address, and the same is true for you. So today, as we actually wrap up the book of Nehemiah, what we're going to see is a very clear example of this internal war of some of our choice and favorite sins coming back around again, leading to a relapse. And we're going to see this in our, really, our uh, returning refugees who who we look at them and think as though they're other people, but they're really us. They're really us. So the first point I would draw out this morning in chapter uh, 9 is this, that Judah confirms their covenant with God. And we actually see this being uh, carried out through chapters 8 through 10 here, where we we left off last week, we left off at a really high point. It was kind of sweet, pretty fun. Where Judah had engaged in what was a common ritual of the day known as the Caesarian Treaty, a Caesarian Treaty, Uh, Again, this was common, well-known in the ancient world, and effectively what would occur is a ceremony would, would be undertaken where a newly conquered people would assemble before their new king, and they would make a covenant with their new sovereign in three movements to show themselves subject to their new ruler. There were three parts, and you should hopefully remember this. The first part was hearing these laws being read, the new laws of their new ruler, Secondly, would be confession, where they would both renounce their previous loyalties and they would affirm the new leadership. So confession sort of had two sides to it. And then thirdly, they would make a promise of fidelity to the new ruler and oftentimes seal those promises with um, seals and uh, symbols and whatnot. Take a sip here. And so this is a common... Uh, treaty of the day here that was being carried out. And last week we looked at the first steps where the law was being read and they heard the laws in a sense of their, their new king, same as the old king, if I could say it that way. And the people initiated this treaty with God. Uh, we see that they're affirming him as their new sovereign. And they did this by calling Ezra, right, the teacher of the law, to come out and read the law to them. And then the Levites kind of mingled around the people. And the ESV gets it really nice. It says that they gave to them the sense of meaning, as it just mingled around and says, what this means here is such and such. And last week we saw that the reading of the law for the people was both convicting and it was encouraging. They saw their transgresses on their transgressions on one hand and were and lamented for those, but they were also renewed in the goodness of God Himself and seeing what He had done for them. And so there was rejoicing in it as well. And we ended last week's kind of hearing of the law by focusing on the encouraging instruction. Uh, Actually, in chapter 8, verses 9 through 12, where they heard from Nehemiah and Ezra, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the Lord. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people saying, be still for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions of food to celebrate with great joy because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So there was this both and they were sorry for sin and yet rejoicing in the goodness of God. And it was really, it's kind of the pinnacle of the book and you almost wish it would just end right there. But it doesn't. So they've received the law of the Lord, now they begin the second part of their covenant making here, which is that they begin their confession. And confession, uh, like a lot of words, has two meanings here, or can have more than one meaning. Uh, and in one case, a confession is an acknowledgement of one's sins, an acknowledgement of one's, of one's uh, transgressions, and a being sorry for that, and lamenting of that. It's like saying, I killed the cat, right? I, Eric, <laughs> killed the cat in the closet, with the stapler, or something like that, right? That's a confession. I'm not saying that happened, but <coughs> it could. Um, another way of confessing is also making a positive statement, affirming something to be true, such as dogs are superior to cats. Now I'm making a truthful statement. So, you know, confession has two sides. It's something I have done, and I regret it. Well, maybe I kind of regret it, and, and uh, or at least regret being caught, right? Uh, And then I also can affirm something to be true over here. So confession is a two-sided coin. And as we come to chapter 9, we see Judah move into the second stage of their covenant making. They've heard the law, and now they're going to make confession in two parts. Look at chapter 9, verse 1. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. That's six hours, by the way. And they stood another quarter in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. So, If you ever think our worship services are long, I'll bring you back to that. <coughs> So they have confessed their sins, their betrayal. But now they go on to confess their belief. And what actually follows here in verses 5 through 37 is a song. And Connie and Rhonda, if you guys would come forward now, and Josh. um, They begin this song, which is really, it's a very long one I might add. And uh, I don't think it would sound very beautiful if you just heard me recite it to you or sing it to you in my nasally voice. But what I wanted to do is to somehow this morning try to get a sense for what this would have sounded like with the people. And so Rhonda and Connie are going to read this text, which is in fact a song. And Pastor Josh is just going to play under it. We don't know what the tune might have been. We don't know how the people would have performed it. But I'd like us to try and hear it and consider it in the way that it was being done in that particular time. So if you guys would go ahead.
1: Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to everything, and the multitudes of heaven worship you.
2: You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous. You saw the suffering of
1: our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials, and all the people of this land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself, which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their pursuers into the depths, like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud, and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take.
2: You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. But they, our ancestors,
1: became arrogant and stiff-necked, and they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed
2: awful blasphemies. Because of your great passion, you did not abandon them in the wilderness. By day the pillar of cloud did not fail to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. You gave them kingdoms
1: and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky. And you brought them into the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in that land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands, along with their kings and the peoples of the land, to deal with them as they pleased. They captured fortified cities and fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well-nourished. They reveled in your great goodness.
2: But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was
1: evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion,
2: you delivered them time after time. You warned them in order to turn them back to the law but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which they said, the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient
1: with them. By your spirit, you warned them through your prophets, yet they paid no attention. So you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy, you did not put an end to them or abandon them, you are a gracious and merciful God now therefore our God, the great God mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all this hardship seem trifling in your eyes the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders on our priests and prophets on our ancestors and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria until today, in all that has happened to us, you have remained righteous you have acted faithfully while we acted wickedly Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways.
2: But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress.
0: Thank you, ladies. If you've ever wondered why the church is a singing people, it's because... Song has a way of taking what we know to be true and driving it down deep into our hearts so that we will believe it and order our lives around it. Uh, In hearing the word of the Lord aloud like that, do you hear how many times the Lord is referred to as gracious and compassionate, forgiving again and again and again. Um, So we've had this opportunity to see sort of this covenant making here. They've heard the laws of the Lord read to them by Ezra, and the Levites explaining them. And now they've taken the occasion here to confess their false loyalties, and also to confess, as we've just heard, the beautiful truths of God's work with them, patiently and compassionately over the years, despite their, their infidelity. And now we come to the third part, where they promise their fidelity to God, with seals and with symbols. And uh, we see this in verses 28 through 36, And we see again in 938 some of these particular seals being given. I'm not going to read all of the text to you. But as you read these passages, you find that there really were four common sins that they continually returned to. The first was these wrongful associations, which were alliances with their neighbors who were enemies of God. The second was their neglect of the Sabbath. The third was their neglect of offerings and taking care of the house of God. And the fourth was these interfaith marriages that they had been warned about, which we've already covered so much. (laughs) But if you look at uh, chapter 9, verse 38, we see this phrase here. In view of all of this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders and Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. I have to be honest, this sort of made me laugh a little bit this week, because it made me think of Charlie Brown, of all people. <laughs> Maybe because our family just watched the movie, uh, Charlie Brown and the Great Pumpkin, but you know, uh, this ongoing feud between Charlie and Lucy over the kicking of the football. And Lucy tries to get him to do it again, and says, oh, but here is, what, a signed document. Documents that I won't remove the football. Here, it's a signed document. And of course, Charlie Brown takes this thing and says, well, look at that. I suppose a fellow can't go wrong with a signed document. This is, I got it. It's a guarantee here. And of course, the same old thing happens. She moves the ball and he falls on his back. And it's almost the same kind of thing here. Here, have they've, they've made all of these commitments, a binding agreement. They've put it in writing. They've affixed their seals to it. And what we're going to see is it doesn't change a thing. They're going to fall right back into these same four sins. Chapters 11 and 12 basically cover sort of the fairly pedestrian activity of just moving back in and settling into their homes and into their daily responsibilities and getting on with life. And again, if the story just ended here, we could say this is great. They've made their promises. They've completed the Suzarian Treaty. They've done all of the aspects here It's all good. What a beautiful end. The credits could roll. They could write off into the sunset. But instead, what we find is the relapse. That Judah breaks their covenant with God. Chapter 13, if you'll turn there, begins suspiciously. By returning back into time, uh, to the day of their covenant making with God. It says in 13 verse 1, On that day, the book of Moses was read aloud in the hearing of the people, and there was." There it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be admitted into the assembly of God because they had not met the Israelites with food and water, but had hired Balaam to call a curse down on them. Our God, however, turned the curse into a blessing. When the people heard this, they excluded. When the people heard this law, they excluded from Israel all who were of foreign descent. Now, listen, I know in the reading of this, this doesn't fall very easily on politically correct ears. Uh, we hear this, and again, it just sounds like xenophobia, just being afraid of the neighbors for no particularly good reason. But as we've already studied, the issue at stake here was that the neighbors were enemies of God. They had a different faith. They worshiped false idols, false gods. And the the, the problem was that intermingling with them or having them within uh, the household of faith was an accommodation that God did not want for them and so that they guarded against that exactly and so the author here is reminding us of this fact this commitment they had already come to so that he can show us their transgression here in verse 4 before this Eliashab the priest had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God he was closely associated with Tobiah this guy again that guy And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as contributions for the priests. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year... Of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here, I learned about the evil thing Eliashab had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back, put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. <coughs> so the upshot is this. During the time that Nehemiah uh, had actually returned to Susa, basically the headquarters of the Persian Empire, to, to serve alongside, again, King Artaxerxes in his former post, um, Eliashab. The priest of the household of God, who had had this long standing charge over the storerooms of the house of God, had allowed his old buddy, Tobiah, the Ammonite, one who had no place in the assembly, as we've already seen here as this chapter introduced, not only to visit, but he granted him a permanent residence in the household of God. And what we find in the continuing passages is not just the return of an enemy that won't die here, but that the Israelites had relapsed into their choice sins again. And what is shocking to the reader as we continue through chapter 13 is that it is the exact same four sins. You'd like to think at least that they'd move on to some new sins. We would understand that. Like, oh yeah, you haven't been entrapped or ensnared by this one before, so therefore you were vulnerable. But you've been here before. How did you do this? The very four that they had sworn off of and sealed with binding agreements and written documents, they have come back to again. And I think the right response to this is Charlie Brown's response, right? Oh, good grief. Good grief. Jeremiah, the prophet, gets it pretty good in 17.9 when he says, The heart is deceitful above all things. Desperately sick. Who can understand it? And Nehemiah, at this point, basically goes into a tizzy. I think that's what the Hebrew means here. A tizzy. Pretty sure. It says in the NIV that he is greatly distressed. Uh, for those of you, who, how many of you have an ESV? I'm just curious. A number of you. Very angry. That's, that's good. The NAS, I think thin. I won't ask you to raise your hands. Very displeasing. But the King James takes the cake on this one. Grieved me sore, it says. It grieved me sore. And you know what? I, I mean, I would have just found that act, you know, laughable once upon a time, but there have been occasions where I have heard something, heard of somebody's sin, or heard of somebody's uh, disappointing action, and it does grieve you to the point of soreness if you've ever felt that. This is how Nehemiah felt when he learned about that. It grieved him sore. And I love what he does. He throws Tobiah out of the storeroom, followed by his furniture. It looks like it comes right out of a lover's quarrel or something like that, but better than that even, it makes us think of our Lord and Savior who walked into the temple and saw what was happening there and did what? He threw the tables over and he threw the crooks out. He's driven by righteous indignation here. The Puritan author John Owen has said this about sin. He says that sin gives birth to sin. Sin begets sin. There is a progressive nature to it. And we see it on display for us here. First of all, Tobiah is just moved into the storehouse. An Ammonite who had no place there in the fellowship is moved into the storehouse. The problem is, now that he's in there, now that he's given this warehouse, in a sense, for his own private dwelling, the grain offerings and the temple artifacts don't have a place to be, so they're displaced. Well, that creates the second problem. Not only do we now have this man in here who shouldn't be, now we have the second problem, which is the grain offerings, which ought to be here to be available for the Levites to support them in their service, aren't there. So the Levites now have to return to the fields to glean for themselves. Which means they have to abandon their posts in instructing the people of God and leading them in rightful worship. Now we move to a third stage. Without the Levites holding people accountable to the law of God, the people wander into sin. They begin neglecting the Sabbath day, a day to rest and worship and to orient their hearts around the Lord. And, as, and, they be, and they neglect also their offerings. And then we move to a fourth stage. Without the Sabbath, these, this day of rightful rest and worship and this godly rhythm of their life, they easily now, easily, without conscience problems, intermingle with the forbidden foreigners. It becomes more and more common. They become more and more accommodating until we read the words in Nehemiah thirteen twenty three. Moreover, in those days, I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Do you see the progressive nature? There's the nose of the camel in the tent, which creates this problem, which creates this problem, which creates this horrendous problem. What started as an individual sin by one man letting uh, this Tobiah figure get a foothold in the temple led to a cascade of communal sin. And I think the correction of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 4 is fitting. Do not give the devil a foothold. And I want to pause right there and sort of bring this into our lives and ask us to consider. Where in your life might the devil have a foothold? just a small territory, just a little bit, just a seemingly innocent thing. Maybe it's how your time is spent. You've gotten a little lazy with it. It doesn't really seem like a sin, but your heart's not really devoted to the Lord like it ought to be. You give most of your time to other things. Maybe it's your offerings. Maybe for whatever reason, it's been difficult to surrender part of what is you've, you've worked hard to earn, and you think of it as your own. And you don't let go of it for the Lord. Maybe there's a particular temptation that you've kept at bay for a long time, but it's encroached. It's gotten a foothold. It's taking up residence in your life. Don't give the devil a foothold. The foothold that Tobiah had in the temple storehouse led to a full infiltration of the enemies of God in the household of God, such that half the children were speaking the language of foreigners. And so here we see Nehemiah's response, which is a good one, by the way. I like this part. (coughs) In verse 25, it says, I rebuked them and called curses down on them. Now, I would love to spend time on that, but that's a sermon for another day. Can't go there today. I will, however, focus on the next part. I beat some of the men. And pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women." Must we hear now that you two are doing this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? I think it's fascinating here to compare these two men, Ezra on one hand and Nehemiah. Ezra responded to these same sins 28 years earlier. Remember when he led the second wave of captives coming out of Babylon into the land and he saw that the first wave had kind of given into these things. We we were told that he sat down He tore his inner and his outer cloak, remember this? Pulled out hair from his head and from his beard, and that he sat down for hours of self abasement. That was Ezra's response when he had heard of these same kinds of sins 28 years earlier. But now, Nehemiah, fascinatingly, he pulls out somebody else's hair (laughs) and he beats on them for a little while. It's not self abasement, it's other abasement. I think it's just nice to know that we have a couple of options here. You know, <laughs> I'm honestly not sure what to make of this. It's not like he's critiqued for doing so. I think at least what we do see here that is common between the men is their supreme love for God. Their righteous indignation for sin, though they deal with it differently. And so here's the thing. If this were the end of the story, this is really the end of the book. We see Nehemiah go on and basically appeal to the Lord, remember me and the reforms that I brought to these people. He sets about correcting these things. But if the story were just to kind of end here, it would be discouraging, wouldn't it? Because we would look at this and we would know, well, we're just all going to relapse into sin again. It's just going to happen again whether it's the first or the second or the third wave or the 16th wave or whatever it is we are today, we're going to fall right back into our same choice sins. If the end of the story ended here, it would be discouraging. The book of Nehemiah, however, I think rightfully brings us to a place where we are at the end of ourselves. And that's a very good place to be the end of ourselves, because we know we need a Savior. We know, left to our own devices, we won't get this right. I think of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 7. This kind of came to me this morning as I was thinking about it. Chapter 7, verse 21. So I found this law at work when I Want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner to the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? That's the question. Answer, through Jesus Christ our Lord. What Israel felt, Paul felt, and we feel who will rescue us from this warring body of death the answer is the Sunday school answer Jesus Christ which brings us to the third point here covenant conditions must be met they must be met and i want to read to you from tim keller he said this better than anybody else i've i've read on this <coughs> One of the main questions constantly raised by the historical books of the Bible has to do with the nature of the covenant. Is the covenant conditional or unconditional? This mystery is one of the main tensions that drive the dramatic action. Since his people have forsaken him, will he forsake them? There seems to be no easy answer that will not compromise something we know of God. Will his holiness give way to his love so that he overlooks sin? Or will his love be overwhelmed by his holiness and justice so that the divine hammer falls? And then Jesus comes, and we see him crying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We realize the answer is that the covenant between God and his people, is it conditional? Is it unconditional? Yes. And yes. Jesus came and fulfilled the conditions so God could love us. Unconditionally. The story of Nehemiah brings us to the end of ourselves. We're not going to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We're not going to perform at the level necessary. We need a Savior, and we have one in Jesus Christ. The covenant conditions have to be fulfilled, and Christ has done it for us, and that is the gospel. Christ has fulfilled what we have neglected. He's performed what we perpetually fail. And while we relapse continually in sin our Lord will return for us not on the basis of our merit but on the basis of what he has done for us. That is the gospel. That is the gospel we lay hold of by faith. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord we've watched the story of Judah here unfold as they sinned and were warned and didn't correct their ways and were carried off to Babylon and didn't really correct their ways and were returned home to Jerusalem and began about some good reforms, but they fell back into sin. and They were corrected again and began some good movements, but fell back into sin. And we see the story of this advance and retreat, advance and retreat, and these relapses and we look at them and we can scoff at them and make fun and laugh and yet we know we are them and we do the same thing. So, Father, while we realize that sin is at war within us, we recognize that it has been defeated in Christ our Savior, and we rejoice. Thank you for this story, Lord, that brings us to the end of ourselves and shows us our need for Jesus Christ. And so we come now to the table to remember that it's in him that we are secure and safe. In his name we pray, amen.